Chapter Twenty Three of England, Canada, and the Great War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. England, Canada, and the Great War by Louis Georges Desjardins. Chapter Twenty Three: British Imperialism and Political Liberty. British history for the last century and more proves that imperialism is not naturally incompatible with political liberty, nor with the respect due the national aspirations of diverse ethnical groups. The unity and the consolidation of the empire made their greatest strides since the close of the war which resulted in the independence of the neighboring republic. As previously explained, they were the outcome of the very wise and statesmanlike change of colonial policy then adopted by England. The days were to come when they would be put to the severest test and were proved more than equal to its greatest strain. Those are the days which the British Empire is living through, with brilliancy and heroism, amidst the dazzling lightning and the roaring thunder of an unprecedented military conflict, with every prospect of surviving its sufferings and sacrifices with a still stronger political structure. The same evolution by which Great Britain was to reach the summit of political liberty, by the final triumph of the new constitutional principle of ministerial responsibility, was spreading to her far overseas colonies. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Newfoundland, were successively granted constitutional charters based on the same principles as those of the institutions of the United Kingdom. As I have already said, imperialism becomes dangerous and deserves the severest condemnation only where and when it is the instrument of autocratic absolutism. It causes me no alarm whatever when it is developed under free institutions, guaranteed and protected by ministerial responsibility. Whatever said to the contrary, by prejudiced and designing writers, imbued with the extravagant notions of a narrow and fanatical nationalism, Canada, the most important of the autonomous colonies of the British Empire, is freer than ever. Like all the other nations, she suffers from disastrous events shaking the whole worldly edifice, but she is none the less the absolute mistress of the initiative of whatever effort she considers her duty to make under those trying circumstances. England has imposed nothing upon Canada, has asked nothing from Canada, since the beginning of the war. She has, of course, accepted, with much pleasure and gratitude, the help we have freely offered and given her. Let our nationalists, in their inspired unfairness, say, if they like, that Canada, like all the Allies defensively fighting, was forced in the conflict by the imperious necessity of the situation created by those expected to reach the goal of their ambition. But they have no right to charge Great Britain to have coerced the Dominion against her will to join in the struggle which the British government had done their utmost to prevent. If it was not giving to this work too wide a range, I would like to undertake an historical sketch of all the good the British constitutional system has produced in the United Kingdom and in the colonies. I shall quote only a few of the most important examples. In my opinion, the one development in England's history since the close of the eighteenth century, most interesting to the French Canadians, is certainly that which resulted in the emancipation of the Roman Catholics of the United Kingdom. To persuade my French-Canadian countrymen of the good to be wrought by the patriotic use of the British institutions, I explained to them that at the beginning of the last century the Roman Catholics of the United Kingdom enjoyed no political rights. They were neither electors nor eligible to the House of Commons. They asked that justice be done to them. True statesmen, high and fair-minded, admitted the justice of their claims and supported them. The ensuing political contest lasted more than twenty years. To obtain the proposed change in the long-standing laws of the realm from an exclusively Protestant electorate was indeed a great task to accomplish. The public men supporting the Roman Catholics' claims were courageous and eloquent. 
they carried the day. Have not the true friends of political freedom every reason to congratulate themselves that a great measure of justice granting political rights to Roman Catholics was voted by an electorate and a Parliament exclusively Protestant? King George the Fourth, through fear that his royal prerogative might be impaired by the change, was hostile to it. He was persuaded to agree to the measure by Sir Robert Peel, the lifelong opponent of Roman Catholic emancipation. Whatever were the religious convictions and feelings of Sir Robert Peel, he was a statesman of a high class. As all the leading public men of England, he had a broad conception of the duties of the chief adviser of the Crown, and of the true spirit of the British Constitution. The voice of the nation having spoken in no uncertain sounds, the national will must be followed. He plainly said so to His Majesty, who yielded. Then, in a most admirable speech, he, Sir Robert Peel, moved himself the passing of the bill granting justice to the Roman Catholics, carried it through the two Houses of Parliament, and had it sanctioned by the King. A great act of national justice always receives its due reward. The Roman Catholics have been faithful and loyal subjects. George the Fourth and his successors have lived to see many evident proofs of their loyal devotion, more especially since the opening of the present war. The final success of the free discussion of the question of granting to the Roman Catholics of the United Kingdom all the rights enjoyed by the British subjects of all the other religious denominations, carried in spite of difficulties not easily overcome, is certainly one of the greatest and most honourable triumphs that political liberty has ever obtained. I was often deeply moved at reading the historic account of that most interesting debate in Parliament, on the public platform and in the press. More and more the conviction was firmly impressed on my mind and soul that a great people accomplishing a grand act of justice gives a most salutary example to posterity, deserving the admiration and gratitude of all generations to come. I was only appreciating with justice and fairness the part played by England and Canada in telling my French-Canadian countrymen that they enjoyed the political rights of British subjects many years before the same privileges and justice was granted to the Roman Catholics of the United Kingdom. That much in answer to the charge of our fanatical extremists, that England and her government always wanted to oppress the French Canadians on account of their religious faith. Without going back to the eventful days of Magna Carta and of the Bill of Rights, both embodying the fundamental constitutional principles which were finally bound to overcome the last pretensions of absolutism of yore, I considered a short review, in broad lines, of the work performed by the British electorate and the Imperial Parliament during the last century would help in destroying in the minds of my French readers the prejudices forced upon them by nationalist writers. That great work is principally illustrated by eight important measures of general interest. I have just mentioned that most honourable one emancipating the Roman Catholics of Great Britain. Shortly after, it was followed by that abolishing the Corn Laws after a protracted and very interesting discussion. That important measure was also carried on the proposition of the same Sir Robert Peel, for a long time its determined opponent. The manufacturing population, increasing so rapidly, would soon have been starved by the continuously augmenting cost of bread. Sir Robert Peel foresaw the fearful consequences sure to ensue if no relief was granted to millions threatened with hunger. He was, as I have already said, too much of a statesman to hesitate in doing his duty. He gave up his own opinion, and advised his sovereign to do away with the Corn Laws, the repeal of which he had Parliament to vote. With the advent of Queen Victoria, ministerial responsibility for all the acts of the sovereign became definitely the fundamental principle of the British Constitution. Complete ministerial responsibility, once fully recognized in Great Britain, was without delay granted to all the British colonies having representative institutions. 
the abolition of slavery all over the british empire is every one must admit a political development of first magnitude one doing the greatest possible honour to the great nation having first taken the glorious initiative of granting to the black race the justice ordered by christianity it is undoubtedly a very valuable reform to the credit of england the imperial parliament realised that the constitutional regime of the united kingdom could not bear all the fruits to be expected from it with an electorate restricted to privileged classes to support such a splendid edifice admirable in structure and strength a larger basic foundation more solid laid deep in the national soil was required after a long political struggle freedom was once more triumphant in the motherland the first great reform bill of eighteen thirty two was the starting-point of successive legislative enactments enlarging the franchise calling to the exercise of political rights various classes of the people bringing up the british electorate to the glorious standard of being one of the freest the most enlightened and most independent in the world the crowning measure of this extensive political reform has been the bill of nineteen seventeen providing for the addition of some eight million voters to the roll including about six million women the rotten boroughs of old were abolished and replaced by a much better redistribution of electoral divisions dating from eighteen sixty seven great autonomous federal colonies with full sovereign rights in the administration of all their interior affairs have been created by imperial charters the canadian australian south african and new zealand dominions of a total territorial area exceeding seven million square miles with a total population of over twenty five million nearly twenty million of which belong to the white race have commenced their new political career with all the confidence and the hopes inspired by their free institutions finally the imperial parliament passed a law granting home rule to ireland unfortunately the war so disastrous in many ways prevented the immediate carrying out of the will of parliament certainly representative of that of the nation but this vexed question must at last be settled once for all it is to be hoped that the day is not far distant when it will be removed from the political arena by a solution satisfactory to ireland to england and to the whole empire besides all those very important measures of political reform the british parliament has passed many laws of urgent social improvement the crowning act of the imperial parliament has been its determined attitude for the maintenance of peace through a long series of years if all the above enumeration of measures of widespread influence for the general good is to be called imperialism i say without hesitation that it is an imperialism worth favouring the world will never have too much of it End of chapter twenty three